I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to The Book Show. A slightly different book show this week in that I'm not in studio in RTE, I'm in my sitting room. Uh, I'm here specifically because we've had a COVID test in the house this week. Don't worry, everything is fine and it's back and it's negative, but we've had to make our plans slightly differently. And that means this week I'm working in pretty much the same way as a lot of you have been over the last eight months. And that's from home. Uh, just to give you an idea of where I am and paint you a small picture. It is my sitting room. There is a TV on one side, but mostly it's bookshelves in this room. Uh, my TBRs are over on the right hand side here beside me. That's the 106 or 107 books I have still yet to read. The ones that I uh, have bought for myself are over on the left hand side. And I could pretty much reach out and have an enjoyable afternoon's reading with almost anything that's at arm's length at the moment. Yes, I'm reclining on my sofa and yes, I have a cup of coffee. It's the most comfortable way I have ever worked. Shirley Jackson was one of America's most enigmatic writers. Most people know her as a horror writer if they know her at all. But she was much more than that. Old friend of the show and novelist Jan Carson is one person who's found inspiration in and is quite taken with the work of Shirley Jackson, who amongst other things is now the subject of a biopic where she's portrayed by Elizabeth Moss. Jan Carson, welcome to the book show. Tell me where you are. I am in my dining room slash library in rainy East Belfast. It's lovely to be with you. I love the joys of modern technology. Um, tell me a, a little bit. You've been thinking a lot about the house and the domestic space as a setting uh, recently, haven't you? Well, I have actually just begun working on a novel, which is about small domestic spaces, which um, is what led me down this kind of rabbit hole of Shirley Jackson. It seems to me that when um, we get haunted houses, they always seem to be big houses. And yet having lived in a small terraced house for the last eight months with very little contact with the world, I can feel that this space is quite threatening and the walls are coming in. So I'm working on that. And my next book, which is coming out in February, is a short story collection called The Last Resort, which is about a haunted caravan park on the north coast. So she had to Shirley Jackson there as well. It's something that, that she was pretty much at the, at the forefront of. I mean, I, I love that you use the phrase terrorising the domestic space. Yeah, I think she was one of the first writers who took kind of that um, small town America vibe and a lot of her work, her stories are set in very kind of familial environments, dinner parties, front rooms, houses, behind the white picket fence. And she turns it on itself and she um, creates um, spaces that are sometimes physically haunted by ghosts, sometimes terrorised by the, the dark and terrible things that, that her characters do to each other. Um, and I think you can see in her work some of the influences that have gone on to, you know, shape things like David Lynch's um, body of work where he has really turned the white picket fence in upon itself. Um, and she was one of the first writers who I think did that in um, America, like suburban America. When I knew we were going to talk about this, I did think about that idea of, of David Lynch and maybe the opening shot of Blue Velvet, which does literally start with a white picket fence and ends up then going down into the grass where you find a severed human ear. That's something that surely Shirley Jackson would have would have loved. Oh, there's so many things I watch and I, I read and I think that's got Shirley Jackson all over it. I can almost hear her chuckling in the background. And I was, um, we've got Brian Moore's centenary coming up here next year in the north. And even something like The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn with that 
um, very small domestic space that Judith Hearn lives in and how it kind of starts to, the walls start to come in and threaten her and, um, you know, she feels very trapped by her domestic circumstances. I think Shirley Jackson would have loved that. To me, Judith Hearn is the book she would have written if she was a, a northern writer. I like the idea as well that there's a duality to her work too as well. There's the gothic fiction that, that everybody knows, but that's versus maybe the more humorous stuff that's taken from her own life. I mean, we've read a lot of Shirley Jackson in, in this house, but my wife has just finished one of her memoirs and she likened it to Nora Ephron. Yeah, Shirley Jackson's an interesting character as a writer. So she has the body of work that most people associate her with, the haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle and the Lottery, which are almost gothic kind of horror stories and then she also had a second life as a writer of these kind of domestic satires life among the savages and raising demons and a regular column in a newspaper where she kind of wrote humorously about what it was like to write raise four children um, in a suburban small american town and they're irreverent they're funny they're very satirical um, and it's almost like reading two different writers. They're both dealing with domestic spaces, but one in a quite light touch way and another in a very dark, oppressive kind of way. So there's always a, that duality to Shirley Jackson. That's part of why I'm fascinated by her, that she's, you know, you come at her from different angles and she's a different writer from each perspective. Those books and those columns, I mean, perhaps unsurprisingly got her in trouble with the neighbours as well, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, one of the big themes running through Shirley Jackson's work is what will the neighbours think? Um, and she quite often throws that back in the reader's face, kind of like, who cares what the, the neighbours think? But when you begin to read her more autobiographical work and the, the writing that's been written about her, you see that there was, I think, quite a deep insecurity running through Shirley Jackson. Partially, I think it came from her mother, who was always very, very... Um, critical of her lifestyle choices but this sense that she was torn between wanting to be a kind of you know domestic goddess kind of figure who fit it in with all of the other wives in the neighborhood and also a bigger stronger pull towards the, the, the role of a writer and the role of a writer who wanted to write about dark difficult things. Would you call some of her writing Auto fiction. I don't know if she necessarily fits into that term, even though the term obviously didn't exist until until much later. It's interesting. I've been thinking about Shirley Jackson as an auto fiction writer this week quite a bit. And I think when you, you go to the stories like The Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which are, are more kind of traditional gothic horror stories, I don't see as much of her own story. But some of the early wor earlier work, like um, The Road Through the Wall, which is about a kind of suburban, almost gated community in California, which is where she grew up herself, and Hangs a Man, which talks about a young, troubled um, women who's writing in a ladies college in, in um, New England which was Shirley Jackson's own experience there's a lot of um, autobiographical stories and themes which run through those novels so yeah I think she was like every writer she took what she knew and what she'd experienced and she put a twist on it um, I think we're probably all a little bit guilty of that and whether you call it autofiction or not is a it's a, a big question that a lot of people are wrestling with at the minute I've always found it fascinating that she has ended up, uh, at least until now, in this bracket of cult writer. I've always found that quite astonishing. Yeah, I mean, not not as many people know Shirley Jackson's work outside of the obvious, um, you know, the lottery and um, the haunting of Hill House. 
um, they, they don't know her as well as they should. Um, I always say when I find a fellow writer who cites Shirley Jackson as one of their influences, I always know we're on the same page. I'm going to get on quite well with them. Um, she was quite prolific. I'm sitting with all of her work here in front of me and there's, I think, uh, 11 different books. So a lot of short stories, a lot of really, really, really um, complex, interesting novels. She wrote for children as well. Um, and yet she's been largely kind of neglected. Um, a lot of people were very snide about her at the start and, you know, dismissed her as a kind of genre writer. You're, you know, you're just a horror writer. That's all you do. Um, and yet I, th I think she, she comments a lot on the, the role of women in American society, the role of, of marriage, class issues, all sorts of things that are very, very pertinent nowadays. And perhaps this is why we're seeing a bit of a Shirley Jackson revival. Um, even those issues around toxic masculinity and relationships between men and women. It's no surprise to me that Shirley Jackson's being celebrated and um, re-evaluated um, in, in 2020. She's definitely a writer for now. Before we finish, Jan Carson, give us some places to start if people want to maybe dive into Shirley Jackson for the first time. If you've not read any Shirley Jackson for the first time, I mean, the obvious ones are We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which I think is her best novel, and The Haunting of Hill House, which um, is, is probably the novel she's most famous for and is one of the best horror stories you'll ever read. Stephen King talks about it as being one of the best, and I think he absolutely knows what he's talking about. But I personally would say start with the short stories. There's a wonderful collection called Dark Tales, which pulls together quite a lot of her most sinister, most troubling stories. Um, and it's a perfect read for these dark winter nights. Glass of wine, Shirley Jackson and scare yourself silly. It's always a genuine pleasure to talk to you from Belfast. Jan Carson, thanks a million for being on The Book Show. Thanks for having me, Rick. The Last Resort by Jan Carson is out next February. While Jan was just talking about autofiction, while Stephanie Preisner was in last week, we talked about memoirs and almost wandered down that very side street. Picking up the thread where we left it off, I thought we might take a look at where fact and fiction can get a little bit blurred. And does it really matter? I'm joined now by Stephanie Preisner to discuss. Stephanie, if a story is good, do we care? Should we care? I mean, if a cake is good, do you care what the ingredients are? Do you care if it's fake sugars and chemicals? I think it's important to know. Of course we care. Because as long as there's a little bit of fiction and you know there's a kernel of falsehood in it, you can't engage emotionally in the same way knowing that you're being manipulated. No doubt you're going to disagree with me. Yeah, so, so we are talking about factual books that have, you know, a little bit of fiction in it. I mean, the, the major example that people always think of when you think of an autobiography that turns to have a whole bunch of whoppers in it is James Frey's A Million Little Pieces. The thing about it is, that book, A Million Little Pieces by James Frey, is a marvellous book. I cried. I couldn't put it down. I got evangelical about it, telling other people to read it. And then I found out the parts of it were not real. And I was disappointed. But if he had just said from the start, this is a book that you're going to enjoy, fact or fiction, off you go. I wouldn't have felt so hurt I suppose personally or manipulated and that's the thing once he starts telling you stories about times where his teeth were ripped out of his head without an anaesthetic you're kind of like oh my god this poor man and look at him writing this book now isn't this amazing and then you find out that that bit isn't true and you're like you know what I don't care about you as much as I thought I did. 
maybe we should explain that this might be where autofiction fits in and even what autofiction is, the idea that an author writes a novel, but usually with a main character that has their name, not always, and that's based in their reality. People may have read uh, a couple of years ago, very harrowing but brilliant, Edward Louis The End of Eddie, maybe this year Rob Doyle's Threshold, Adrian Duncan's Love Notes from a German Building Site, it's been a lot of Irish books in, in that category out this year, and possibly the best of them this year, possibly the best book this year, during the grief as a ghost in the throat. I can do you one better than that, that a book that I've just finished, which is Dolly Alderton's Ghosts. And my understanding, now that you've just said it, wasn't that people put their own name and their own character into a work of fiction. What Dolly has done is written what I think is her actual lived experience, but then tried to couch it in like, oh no, this is just fiction, this didn't really happen because she originally, her first book was a memoir and it was incredible, but she did really kind of cannibalise her own experiences in order for other people to be entertained and I think is kind of tired of that now. So she's writing what she says is fiction, but what is very close to her actual life, if you read her newspaper articles and you and, and, and you follow her in any way, it's quite like, well, actually, I think this is your lived experience, but you're changing the character name and then I'm meant to believe that it's not true. I have to say, even though I loved the book, you kind of judge it through a different lens, don't you? Because I'm just judging Dolly Alderton as an author and her capacity to craft something as a writer, like W-R-I-G-H-T, how wrought the story is. Rather than when I read her first book, I was kind of judging her as a person and comparing her life to my life and judging her and her how she dealt with her lived experience. So it is a different beast in a way. And I can see why an author would choose to do it. But I do think that you lose a bit of the connection with the author. Yeah, there's also that whole other subsection as well, that when people don't necessarily tell fibs and or exaggerate things about their own lives, but about uh, entire moments in history. I mean, you take the tattooist of Auschwitz, Heather Morris's book, it bothered you and a lot of people, ultimately. Because there's absolutely no need to be fictionalising the Holocaust to make it more dramatic. And you don't need to be adding to it in order to pull at heartstrings, you know? And it's kind of offensive in that way, where you think, oh, this is a bit boring, so I'll spice it up with a bit of heartache, or I'll really punch this line here. Tell it like it is when it's history, because you are dangerously in the realm of influencing people into not understanding the facts of the situation, or making them feel like the facts of the situation aren't dramatic enough for a narrative in their own right. Maybe I'm being too demanding of my authors. And on that note, we'll finish. Stephanie Preisner, I'll see you next week. I'll go and ponder that and I'll talk to you next week, Rick. Earlier in the programme, we went to Belfast. Now it's time again for an author to meet through the magic of 21st century technology with one of the country's book clubs here on The Book Show. She's in Cork, they're in Dublin. For the first time this series, we are going to hear from the capital. Here's Aoife to tell us about the Bitchin Book Club. We are a group of nine women in our late 20s to early 30s based in Dublin, although about half the group are originally from Galway. We started the Bitchin Book Club about four years ago when a few of us were talking about different books we had read while trying not to give away any spoilers. It was then we realised that we shared a love of reading and that a book club could be fun. The Bitchin Book Club was born. We aim to meet about once a month, although we have been on a bit of a hiatus since COVID-19 happened. Food is also a centrepiece of our book club. Our meetings often start with a relaxed weekend brunch that turns into a four or five hour event, usually accompanied by wine. Members have also been known to serve food and drink based on the theme of the book, such as mac and cheese from Dolly Alderton's memoir, 
or American comfort food from the Deep South based on Tayari Jones's American Marriage. We tried to read a wide variety of genres and authors and Louise O'Neill's Asking For It was one of the first books we read and discussed as a group. It generated a lot of discussion at the time and we are pleased to have the opportunity to ask her a few questions today. The Bitchin' Book Club sound like immense fun. That sounds like a full-service book club, if ever I heard of one. Uh, this week, as Aoife said there, the novel for discussion is Asking For It by Louise O'Neill. And here is Tara with a reminder. Asking For It by Irish author Louise O'Neill is a 2015 novel in the young adult genre that explores themes of rape, sex and consent in an often uncomfortable, relentlessly provocative, but unfailingly honest way. Emma, the main character, is a popular and beautiful teenager living in a small village in Cork. Her life is turned upside down when she is brutally raped by a number of local GAA players at a party. The village's loyalties are split between Emma, who was drunk at the party and was considered by Manny to have been asking for it, and her alleged rapists. The incident was also filmed and shared online, providing a very relevant commentary on social media in the modern age. The book also explores the effect of the incident on Emma's mental health, as well as those around her, particularly her parent and brother. It is a harrowing but compelling read and has since been adapted into a play that has been performed to great acclaim. I'm now joined by the author of Asking For It, Louise O'Neill. Louise, first of all, how are you getting on? I'm good. Um, I just wanted to say that I am very jealous of that book club because I have always wanted to join a book club. And every time I have attempted to do so, um, people get very, I don't know, they get a bit funny. And I think it's because they expect, or they think that I'll expect everyone to have actually read the book and have very academic um, opinions about it. And so I seem to have been rebuffed um, every time I've tried to join a book club. So I I'm trying not to take that personally, um, but if the Bitchin' Book Club want another member um, when all of this is over, I would love to join. I think the very least you'd get is a decent eggs benedict out of it. Um, okay, we're going to take the first question from the Bitchin' Book Club for you, and it's from Neve. Emma, the main character and the victim of the assault, is quite an unlikable person. She is vain, vapid and even cruel. Why did you characterise her this way? Was it important to you for her to be someone the reader might struggle to sympathise with? Um, you know, I get asked this question a lot um, to the point where people seem to associate the idea of unlikable female characters with my books, whether that is Asking For It or Almost Love um, or my newest one, um, After the Silence. Um, and I, I do find it a bit odd um, because in general, um, I'm not like necessarily going out of my way to create characters that I think will be unlikable. Um, I'm actually not that concerned with likability. I'm much more concerned with, I suppose, authenticity and, you know, whether this character feels like a real human being. Um, and I think that we're all very flawed. Um, and I suppose I just really wanted to represent that um, in my books because I think particularly with women, we're, we're often not given the opportunity or we're not allowed to be fully fleshed out you know that we're sort of there's a, a very gendered expectation of women I think to be to be nice and I suppose I'm trying to interrogate that away in my in my novels um but I suppose with asking for it like 
I also wanted to interrogate the trope of the perfect victim um, because I think I had read so many books um, around sexual violence um, and very often the victim um, of the abuser of the um, of that violence was this sort of perfect almost Mary Sue character um, you know just this idealistic sort of paragon of virtue um, and I think the problem is, is that that's reflected in real life where there are all these barriers that are put in the way of victims reporting. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, if you're not this white middle class um, virgin um, who has never drank or taken drugs or had, you know, had sex in their lives and comes from a quote unquote good family, um, I think there's a real fear that you won't be believed or that your past will be used against you. Um, and I think that I really wanted um, Emma to be a character that maybe that her flaws could be weaponized in that way um, and not just by the other characters in the book, but also by the reader themselves, um, that I, I wanted to create a situation where the reader was almost engaging in the same victim blaming that the other characters in Emma's life are um, and that the reader might have a realization of I suppose, how deeply ingrained some of those attitudes are, um, particularly around this idea of the perfect victim, which, you know, does not exist. That's a great question. Thank you, Neve. Uh, second one is from Laura. As a writer, how do you look after yourself when immersing in a character going through such a harrowing experience? Do you find it difficult to write about? It's another really good question. Um, I think I, I I did with asking for it. Um, I did struggle. Um, I think probably because I had experience of sexual trauma um, myself. So I think that in a lot of ways it was bringing up some of that pain and some of that trauma. And I, I had to kind of work through it while also writing the book. Um, and I stayed... I suppose because there's a real sense of claustrophobia um, in asking for it, particularly in the second half um, of the book, which because, you know, it's divided into two parts before the rape and after the rape. Um, and in the second part of the book, you know, it's just this sense of like she feels completely trapped and she barely leaves the house and just this creeping sense of kind of the walls closing in on her. And in order, I suppose, to create that, um, I I just wanted to stay in that world. I wanted to stay in Emma's head um, and... Emma's head was not a very pleasant place to be at times because, you know, she's dealing with PTSD and, um, and you know, she's just absolutely traumatised. Um, so I think I have gotten better at that, um, probably with more experience. Asking for it is my second novel. I'm currently working on my sixth. So I think that with more experience, I've, I've definitely, I suppose, been more able to create a sort of amount of emotional distance between me um, and the characters and the book that I'm writing um, and not allow it, I think, to, uh, I suppose, get in too deeply. So I just think maybe it's experience as well. This is the Bitchin Book Club in Dublin City Centre asking questions of Louise O'Neill about asking for it. The final one comes from Lizzie. My question is kind of about the C word. Um, I suppose really lockdown and restrictions have characterised living during the pandemic and these have started to become reflected in essay anthologies and other works of non-fiction that have been published this year. And I was wondering how you see this appearing in your own writing and maybe in character development going forward? 
Oh, that is another... God, these questions are brilliant. I, as I said, I really want to be part of their book club if these are the kind of discussions they're having. Um, I think that's a really interesting question. You know, I read Zadie Smith's um, Intimations, which uh, was excellent. Um, but I, I don't know how interested I am at the moment anyway reading um any fiction that is set during this time or you know watching um any pop culture um that has been shaped by covid in that way just because i think that firstly we're still living through it and to be honest that's enough for me um i want to turn to my books or to my tv shows or to my podcasts or whatever i think for a bit of light relief from that um and i also think you know, there's a reason, let's say, why we don't have a definitive 9-11 story, um, because I think sometimes there needs to be a certain amount of distance between the event um, and analysis afterwards so that we can fully understand its impact. Um, and I just obviously don't think that we're quite there with um, COVID-19 yet. So, you know, it's interesting. The book that I'm writing at the moment um, is set in 2020, and I keep, you know, having these thoughts about, oh, should I should I be mentioning hand sanitizer and and should I, um, be talking about you know face masks? So I think I'm I'm setting it in sort of an alternative 2020, um, that hasn't been impacted uh, by this yet because I'm not sure of how to write a story in which COVID nineteen is present, um, and prevent it from becoming the story. Um, so I think these are things that, you know, um, artists um, in all uh, genres will be tackling um, over the next few years. And I am very interested to see the art that comes um, out of this crisis and that has been inspired by this crisis and shaped by this crisis. Um, but for the moment, I am not feeling particularly motivated uh, to tackle it in my own work. I love it that your dog has made uh, an appearance in this week's programme when my two dogs were far more likely to be the ones to do that. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I was listening. I was like, oh my God, I hope they can't hear him. Um, He is a rescue um, and is still quite nervous. Uh, So I've only had him a couple of weeks. So he is still a little bit nervous. So whenever a car passes um, the window, he just starts barking furiously. So I was really hoping you wouldn't be able to hear Louise O'Neill, thanks a million, as always, for joining us on The Book Show. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. Asking for it and her latest After the Silence are both published by Riverrun. Thanks to Louise O'Neill and to the Bitchin Book Club in Dublin City for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, please do. You can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's book show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. Coming up this week on RTE Radio 1's Book on One, Sinead Gleeson reads from a selection of her book of essays, Constellations. You can catch that nightly at 11.20 during late date or on the Book on One website. And if you have a spare hour during the week and you'd like to check out me talking to Neil Gaiman the day after his birthday from his home on the island, of Sky. Shelf analysis is available on RTE Culture. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on the programme.